Chapter 5 About Guppies and Chapwallas Harun had not forgotten what his father had said about Katam Shud. Too many fancy notions are turning out to be true, he thought. At once, but the hoopoe answered without moving its beak. A strange sort of story moon our Kahani would be if storybook things weren't everywhere to be found, and Harun had to admit that that was a reasonable remark. They were speeding south to Gup City. The hoopoe had chosen to remain on the water, zooming along like a speedboat, spraying story streams in every direction. Doesn't it muddle up the stories? Harun inquired. All this turbulence? It must mix things up dreadfully. No problem, cried but the hoopoe. Any story worth its salt can handle a little shaking up. Vavoom! So I know we've been talking a lot about the magical realism aspects of this and real versus make-believe, but as I'm reading this and, and things are so familiar um, from, from what his dad told him when he was telling him these stories, I'm kind of realizing Harun is in one of his dad's stories. Yeah. Is that like, the right take? Yeah, I think so. It's like he fell into a storybook. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, Great. Let's see what happens next. Okay. Vavoom. Abandoning what was clearly not a profitable line of conversation, Harun returned to more important matters. Tell me more about this Katam Shud, he requested, and was utterly amazed when If replied in almost the very same words that Rashid Khalifa had used. He is the arch enemy of all stories, even of language itself. He is the prince of silence and the foe of speech. At least, and here the water genie abandoned the somewhat too sonorous tone of the preceding sentences, that's what they say. When it comes to the land of Chup and its people, the Chupwallas, it's all mostly gossip and flim-flam because it's generations since any of us went across the twilight strip into the perpetual night. So what really is the difference between people who are being silent for silence sake and others who are talking all the time but have nothing meaningful to say? What I really like about that question is that is what Rushdie wants us to be asking ourselves. And this is coming at a time when he was being forced to be silent. Why was he being forced to be silent? He was being forced to be silent because Islamic leadership at the time took offense to Rushdie's The Satanic Verses and put a fatwa on him, a a death sentence. So we have on one side the Chupwallas who seem to value silence above everything else. And then on the other side, we have the Gups who chatter just for the sake of making noise. And it brings up this whole question about how valuable is free speech if all you're doing is making noise. So let's read on from here. You'll have to forgive me, Harun broke in, but I'm going to need a little help with the geography. Humph, sniffed but the hoopo. Poorly educated, I see. That's totally illogical, Harun retorted. You're the one who's been boasting about how speed has hidden this moon from people on Earth, so it's unreasonable to expect us to know about its topographical features, principal exports, and the like. But Butt's eye was twinkling. Really, there were major difficulties involved in talking to machines, Harun thought. With their deadpan expressions, it was impossible to know when they were pulling your leg. This seems like a good place to use a visualization strategy, an excellent active reading strategy. Harun is asking about the geography, and we're about to read this paragraph that describes what it looks like. This might be a time when I take out a pen and pencil, turn to the front of my book, and try to kind of map out what this geography actually is. That's a great exercise, so let's give it a shot. Thanks to the genius of the eggheads at P2C2E House, but began taking pity on Harun. The rotation of Kahani has been brought under control. As a result, the land of Gup is bathed in endless sunshine, while over in Chup, it's always the middle of the night. In between the two lies the twilight strip, in which, at the Grand Comptroller's command, Guppies, long ago, constructed an unbreakable and also invisible wall of force. 
Its good name is Chatterjee's Wall, named after our king, who, of course, had absolutely nothing to do with building it. Hold on a minute, Haroon frowned. If Kahani goes round the earth, even if it goes very fast indeed, there must be moments when the earth is between it and the sun, so it can't be true that one half is always in the daylight. You're telling stories again. Naturally I'm telling stories, but the hoopoe replied. And if you have any arguments, please take them up with the walrus. Now excuse me, please, while I pay attention ahead. Volume of traffic has dramatically increased. So, Miss Arch, I wanted to stop here because I remember last chapter or a couple chapters ago when you were getting a little bit bogged down by all the all the details and the science that these characters were trying to share in order to help us make sense of their world. This part right here tells me that the details aren't really necessary. It's almost like But the Hoopo is saying, don't don't care too much about the details, just enjoy the ride. Honestly, Mr. Doyle, that's a huge relief to me because I really like where this story is going, and if I know that I can just cruise along and hear the stories and, you know, think about the details or imagine them, but not really focus in on them, I think I'm going to enjoy the rest of this book a lot more. Word up. I love that. Let's go. Haroon had plenty more questions to ask. Why did the Chippewalas live in permanent night? Must it not be very cold indeed if the sun never shone at all? And what was Bezabon, or a cult master, come to that? But they were evidently nearing Gup City because the waters around them and the skies above were filling up with mechanical birds every bit as fanciful as but the hoopo. Birds with snake heads and peacock tails, flying fishes, dog birds, and on the backs of the birds were water genies, with whiskers of every possible hue, all wearing turbans and embroidered waistcoats and aubergine-shaped pajamas, and all looking so much like if that it was a good thing, in Haroon's opinion, that the colors of their whiskers were different enough to make it possible to tell them apart. Something most serious has occurred, if commented. All units have been ordered back to base. Now, if I had my disconnecting tool, he added sharply, I would have received the order myself because, as of course thieflets do not know, there is a highly advanced transceiver built into the handle. Luckily, however, Haroon came back just as sharply. Since you half-poisoned me with that dirty story, you worked things out, so there is no harm done except, perhaps, to me. If ignored this, and Haroon's attention was distracted as well because he noticed that a large patch of what looked like a particularly thick and tough type of weed or vegetable of some sort was actually racing along right beside them, keeping pace with but the hoopo without apparent effort, while it waved vegetable tentacles in the air in a most disturbing fashion. At the center of the mobile vegetable patch was a single lilac flower with thick, fleshy leaves of a type that Haroon had never seen before. What's that? he inquired, pointing, even though he knew it was impolite to do so. A floating gardener, naturally, said But the Hoopo without moving its beak. That made no sense. You mean a floating garden, Haroon corrected the bird, which gave a little snort. That's all you know, it harumphed. At that moment, the high-speed vegetation actually reared up out of the water and proceeded to wind and knot itself around and about until it had taken something like the shape of a man, with the lilac-colored flower positioned in its head where a mouth should be and a cluster of weeds forming a rustic-looking hat. So it is a floating gardener after all, Haroon realized. The floating gardener was now running lightly over the surface of the water, showing no sign of sinking. How could he sink? But the hoopoe interjected. Would he not be a sinking gardener in that case? Whereas, as you observe, he floats. He runs, he walks, he hops. No problem. If called across to the gardener, who at once nodded a brief greeting, got a stranger with you. Very odd, still. Your own business, he said. His voice was as soft as flower petals. After all, he was actually speaking through those lilac lips. 
but his manner was somewhat abrupt. I thought all you guppies were chatterboxes, Haroon whispered to If, but this gardener doesn't say much. He is talkative, If rejoined, for a gardener anyhow. How do you do? Haroon called across to the gardener, thinking that, as he was the stranger, it was his business to introduce himself. Who are you? The gardener asked in his soft but abrupt way without breaking his stride. Haroon told him his name, and the gardener gave another curt nod. Mali, he said, floating gardener, first class. Please, Haroon said in his nicest voice. What does a floating gardener do? Maintenance, answered Mali. Untwisting twisted story streams. Also, unlooping same. Weeding, in short, gardening. Think of the ocean as a head of hair, said But the Hoopoe helpfully. Imagine it's as full of story streams as a thick mane is full of soft, flowing strands. The longer and thicker a head of hair, the knottier and more tangled it gets. Floating gardeners, you can say, are like the hairdressers of the sea of stories. Brush, clean, wash, condition. So now you know. If asked Mali, what's this pollution? When did it start? How bad is it? Mali answered the question in sequence. Lethal, but nature is yet unknown. Started only recently, but spread is very rapid. How bad? Very bad. Certain types of story may take years to clean up. For example, Haroon piped up, certain popular romances have become just long lists of shopping expeditions. Children's stories also. For instance, there's an outbreak of talking helicopter anecdotes. I think I really like this guy, Mali. I, I find that, you know... You need to be kind of choosy with the words that you pick and put into your story. It needs to have a structure, a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it would be nice if a guy like Mali was around to make sure your story was on track. Awesome. Thank you. Should I say more? <laughs> no, you you nailed it. I just was going to start talking for the sake of talking. And, you know, I'm being a, being a, a, a gup. I'm a guppy. So um, with that, Mali fell silent. With that, Mali fell silent and the rush to Gup City continued. A few minutes later, however, Haroon heard more new voices. They were like choruses, many voices at a time, speaking in perfect unison, and they were full of froth and bubbles. Finally, Haroon worked out that they were actually coming from beneath the surface of the ocean. He looked down into the waters and saw two fearsome sea monsters right beside the racing hoopo, swimming so close to the surface that they were almost surfing on the spray thrown up by butt as it sped along. From their roughly triangular shape and their iridescent coloring, Haroon deduced that they were angelfish of some variety. Though they were as big as giant sharks and had literally dozens of mouths all over their bodies, these mouths were constantly at work, sucking in story streams and blowing them out again, pausing only to speak. When they did so, Haroon noted each mouth spoke with its own voice, but all the mouths on each individual fish spoke perfectly synchronized words. Hurry, hurry, don't be late, bubbled the first fish. Ocean's ailing, cure can't wait, the second went on. But the hoopo was once again kind enough to enlighten Haroon. These are plenty maw fishes, it said. They acquire their good name from the fact that you have no doubt registered, namely, that they have plenty of maws, i.e. mouths. And I'm going to interrupt right here to point out that V-I-Z period is an abbreviation and it is something that's used instead of namely. So when you see V-I-Z, it's short for namely. Thanks for that clarification, Mr. Doyle. But before we move on, um, I wanted to tell you something. When I was in high school, I broke up with my <laughs> boyfriend. Yeah, I remember the story. Yeah. Right. And, and in an attempt to cheer me up, you know what my grandmother said to me? 
What did your grandmother say? She told me there were plenty of fish in the sea. So do these two plenty of fish, these angel fish, do they remind you of... Was he an angel fish? Would you consider him an angel fish? Or, What's or, the opposite? Or, okay, maybe a dog, a dog <laughs> yeah, fish? I think he turned out to be a dog fish after all. <laughs> oh, well, I'm sorry um, but, but this does, but it also reminds me of the... Plenty of fish in the sea that was told at the beginning um, when when Harun's mother leaves yeah, his father. And remember, Rashid talked about Soraya. He he called her an angel fish. So the fact that these plenty of fish are angel fish is, I don't know, it's just, I think, Rushdie being playful with words. And, and he's think, in the story. Yeah, I think it's kind of charming. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So now we're really moving on. So, thought Harun, filled with wonder. There really are plenty moth fish in the sea, just as old Snooty Buttu said. And I have traveled a long way, just as my father said. And I've learned that a plenty moth fish can be an angel fish as well. Plenty moth fishes always go in twos, but added without moving its beak. They are faithful to partners for life. To express this perfect union, they speak only and always in rhyme. These particular plenty moth fishes seemed unhealthy to Haroon. Their multiple mouths frequently sputtered and coughed, and their eyes looked inflamed and pink. I'm no expert, Harun called to them, but are you both quite well? The replies came swiftly, punctuated by bubbling coughs. All this bad taste, too much dirt. Swimming in the ocean starts to hurt. Call me Baga. This is goopy. Excuse our rudeness, we feel droopy. Eyes feel roomy, throat feels sore. When we're better, we'll talk more. As you correctly guessed, all guppies love to talk, if said in an aside. Silence is often considered rude, hence the Plenty Ma's apology. They seem to be talking okay to me, Harun replied. Normally, each mouth says something different, if explained. That makes plenty more talk. For them, this is like silence. Whereas for a floating gardener, a few short sentences are called talkativeness, Harun sighed. I don't think I'll ever get the hang of this place. What do the fish do, anyway? If replied that the Plenty Ma fishes were what he called hunger artists, because when they are hungry, they swallow stories through every mouth, and in their innards, miracles occur. A little bit of one story joins on to an idea from another, and hey, presto, when they spew the stories out, they're not old tales, but new ones. Nothing comes from nothing, thieflet. No story comes from nowhere. New stories are born from old. It's the new combinations that make them new. So you see, our artistic Plenty Ma fishes really create new stories in their digestive systems. So just think how sick they must be feeling now. All these filthied up sagas passing through their insides, front to back, top to bottom, side to side. No wonder they look green about the gills. It seems to me like Rushdie is always describing these characters in two opposite extremes, either quiet or talkative. Does this have something to do with that black and white yin and yang thing we've talked about before? I think it does, and I think that in a lot of different folk tales and, and stories of, of this nature, there's always there those extremes always tend to exist. Good is always fighting against evil, and um, you know light is always fighting against dark. And to me, I think Rushdie is trying to make a point that there needs to be some balance to that. You know, just because one character is considered uh, talkative, and another character is considered quiet, like that. They can both coexist in the same world. They could still find common ground. Correct. All right. So where were we? Be good if I didn't hold my book upside down. All right. Plenty Maws surfacing to utter one more wheezy couplet. The Plenty Maws surface to utter one more wheezy couplet. Things are worse than we've ever known, and the worst place is down in our old zone. 
On hearing this, the water genie clapped his hand to his forehead, almost dislodging his turban. What? What? Harun insisted on knowing, and so a now even more preoccupied if grudgingly explained that the old zone in the southern polar region of Kahani was an area to which hardly anybody went anymore. There was little demand for the ancient stories flowing there. You know how people are. New things, always new. The old tales, nobody cares. So the old zone is falling into disuse. But it was believed that all the streams of story had originated long ago in one of the currents flowing north across the ocean from the wellspring, or source of stories, that was located, according to legend, near the moon's south pole. And if the source itself is poisoned, what will happen to the ocean, to us all, if almost wailed? We have ignored it for too long, but now we pay the price. Hold on to hats, but the hoopoe interrupted. Hitting the brake now. Gup City, dead ahead. Record time. va 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 voom no problem. So what's up with this old zone where all the stories come from? It's called the Source of Stories, and in the novel, that's where all the old stories exist. So if that place is poisoned, what that means is that all of the new stories and every story that hasn't been written yet, they'll all be poisoned. But it's showing us that even today's new stories come from old stories. Mm. You know, every story that's told is is a twist on a story that has already been told. Um, and I think that that's an important concept to wrap our brains around as we move forward. Moving on. It's amazing what you can get accustomed to and at what speed, Harun reflected, this new world these new friends? I've just arrived and already none of it seems very strange at all. Gup City was all excitement and activity. Waterways crisscrossed the city in all directions, for the capital of the land of Gup was built on an archipelago of 1,001 small islands just off the mainland. And at present, these waterways thronged with craft of every shape and size, all packed with guppy citizens who were similarly diverse and who all wore worried expressions on their faces. But the hoopoe, with Molly on one side and Goopy and Bega on the other, advanced more slowly now through this floating crowd, heading like everyone else for the lagoon. The lagoon, a beautiful expanse of multicolored waters, stood between the archipelago where most guppies made their homes in intricately carved wooden buildings with roofs of corrugated silver and gold, and the mainland where a gigantic formal garden came down in terraces right to the water's edge. In this pleasure garden were fountains and pleasure domes and ancient spreading trees, and around it were the three most important buildings in Gup, which looked like a trio of gigantic and elaborately iced cakes, the palace of King Chatterjee, with its grand balcony overlooking the garden. To its right, the Parliament of Gup, known as the Chatterbox, because debates there could run on for weeks or months, or even, occasionally, years on account of a guppy fondness for conversation. And to its left, the towering edifice of P2C2E House, a huge building from which whirs and clanks were constantly heard, and inside which were concealed 1,001 machines too complicated to describe, which controlled the processes too complicated to explain. But the hoopoe brought If and Haroon to the steps at the water's edge. The boy and the water genie disembarked and joined the throng gathering in the pleasure garden, while those guppies who preferred the water, floating gardeners, plenty moth fishes, mechanical birds, remained in the lagoon. In the pleasure garden, Haroon noticed large numbers of guppies of an extraordinary thinness, dressed in entirely rectangular garments covered in writing. Those, if told him, are the famous pages of gup, that is to say, the army. Ordinary armies are made up of platoons and regiments and such like. Our pages are organized into chapters and volumes. Each volume is headed by a front, or title, page. And up there is the leader of the entire library, which is our name for the army. 
General Kitab himself. Oh, I just love that. It's such a shameless love letter to stories. Yes, it sure is. And isn't it isn't it just so playful? Isn't this isn't Rushdie just having fun? Warm and lovely. Oh man, I hope that my students enjoy stories even a, a fraction of how much Rushdie does. Let's go. Up there was the balcony of the Palace of Gup, on which the city's dignitaries were now assembling. It was easy to identify General Katab, a weather-beaten old gent with a rectangular uniform made of finely tooled gold inlay leather of the sort Harun had sometimes seen on the covers of old and valuable books. Then there was the speaker, that is, the leader of the chatterbox, a plump fellow who was even now talking unstoppably to his colleagues on the balcony, and a frail, small, white-haired gentleman wearing a circlet of gold and a tragic look. This was presumably King Chatterjee himself. The last two figures on the balcony were harder for Harun to identify. There was a young and at present extremely worked-up fellow with a dashing but somehow foolish look to him. Prince Bolo, the fiancé of King Chatterjee's only child, his daughter, the Prince Bakcheet, if whispered to Harun, and lastly, a person with a hairless head of quite spectacular smoothness and shininess, bearing on his upper lip a disappointingly insignificant mustache that looked like a piece of a dead mouse. He reminds me of Snooty Butt, too, Haroon whispered to If. Oh, never mind, nobody you know. But who is this fellow? In spite of whispering, he was overheard by many of the people now crowding together in the full pleasure garden. They turned in disbelief to inspect the stranger whose ignorance was so remarkable and whose nightshirt was equally unusual. And Haroon noticed that among the crowd were many men and women who, like the man on the balcony, had smooth, shiny, and hairless heads. These people all wore the white coats of laboratory technicians and were clearly the eggheads of P2C2E House, the geniuses who operated the machines too complicated to describe, or... M2C2Ds, which made possible the processes too complicated to explain. Are you... he began. They interrupted him. For being eggheads, they were extremely quick on the uptake. We are the eggheads, they nodded. And then, with looks on their faces that said, we can't believe you don't know this, they pointed at the shiny fellow on the grand balcony and said, he is the walrus. He's the walrus? Harun burst out, astounded. But he's nothing like a walrus. Why do you call him that? It's on account of his thick, luxuriant walrus mustache, one of the eggheads replied, and another added admiringly, Look at it. Isn't it the best? So hairy, so silky smooth. But, Haroon began, and then stopped when If dug him hard in the ribs. I suppose if you're as hairless as these eggheads, he told himself, even that pathetic dead mouse on the walrus's upper lip looks like the greatest thing you've ever seen. I kind of like that the walrus is not what you would expect. He's just another egghead, but with this gross mustache. And Mr. Doyle, I have to say, mustaches in general, not yours, of course, because you've got it's like nice flow. Oh, yeah. But mustaches in general really creep me out. Do they really? Oh. I <laughs> Don't actually, shave. I, I really enjoy mustaches. The hairier and the thicker the better, like a dead mouse? Yeah, I like dead mouse mustaches. They're my favorite. They're my favorite. So I love the walrus. He sounds like a very handsome fella. And how interesting that this guy that we've been prepared um, to be like a big important character is being compared to Snooty Butt 2. Just another Butt 2. Yeah. He's a Butt 2. He sure is. He's Butt 3. And so let's go. King Chatterjee raised his hand. The crowd fell silent. An unusual event in Gup City. The king attempted to speak, but words failed him. And shaking his head unhappily, he stepped back. It was Prince Bolo who burst to impetuous speech. They have seized her, he cried in his dashing, foolish voice. My bat cheat, my princess. 
The servants of the cult master purloined her some hours back. Churls, dastards, varlets, hounds! By gum, they will pay for this. General Katab took up the story. A blasted business, confound it. Her whereabouts are not known, but most probably she will be kept prisoner in the citadel of Chup, the ice castle of Katam Shud in Chup City, at the heart of the perpetual night. Spots and fogs, a bad business. Harumph! We have sent messages to cultmaster Katam Shud, continued the speaker of the chatterbox. These messages concerned both the vile poison being injected into the ocean of the streams of story and the abduction of Princess Batcheat. We demanded that he put a stop to the pollution and also return within seven hours the kidnapped lady. Neither demand has been met. I have to inform you, therefore, that a state of war now exists between the lands of Gup and Chup. Extreme urgency is of the essence, the walrus told the crowd. The poisons that are spreading so rapidly will destroy the entire ocean if steps are not taken to get to the bottom of the problem. Save the ocean, cried the crowd. Save Bat Cheat, shouted Prince Bolo. This confused the crowd for a few moments, then, good-naturedly, they altered their cry. For Bat Cheat in the ocean, they exclaimed, and Prince Bolo looked satisfied enough with that. If the water genie put on his most winning expression, Well, now it's war, young thieflet, he said with mock regret. That means nobody at P2C2E House will have any time for your little request. You may as well hand back that disconnecting tool, then. What do you say? I'll have you taken home for nothing, completely free. There. What could be fairer than that? Haroon clutched the disconnector with all his might and stuck out his lower lip mutinously. No walrus, no disconnector, he said. That's flat. If appeared to accept this philosophically. Have a chocolate, he said, and produced from one of his many waistcoat pockets a jumbo-sized version of Haroon's favorite chocolate bar. Realizing that he was starving hungry, Haroon gratefully accepted. I didn't know you made these here on Kahani, he said. We don't, If replied. Food production on Kahani is strictly basic. For tasty and wicked luxury items, we have to go to Earth. So this is where the unidentified flying objects come from, Haroon marveled. And that's what they've been after? Snacks. Just then, there was a small commotion on the palace balcony. Prince Bolo and General Katab went inside for a moment, then returned to announce that guppy patrols who had entered the outlying areas of the Twilight Strip looking for clues to the whereabouts of the Princess Batcheat had arrested a stranger, a highly suspicious person, who could give no satisfactory account of himself or explain what he was doing in the Strip. I will question this spy before you all, myself, shouted Bolo, and though General Katab looked a little embarrassed by that idea, he did not argue. Now a quartet of pages led a man onto the balcony. A man wearing a long blue nightshirt with his hands tied behind his back and a sack over his head. When the sack was removed, Haroon's mouth fell open and the unfinished chocolate bar fell from his hand. The man standing and shivering on the palace balcony between Prince Bolo and General Katab was Haroon's father, Rashid Khalifa, the storyteller, the unhappy Shah of Blah. And that brings us to our takeaways. What do you have, Miss Archibald? I'm just dying to take away here, Mr. Doyle. I'm going to say the first takeaway is that we are really reading uh, about Haroon in the story. So the story's happening. Haroon is in it. He is working for us and finding out some of the answers to the questions readers are wondering and um, in the stories that his dad has told him all his life. Yeah, totes my goats. Takeaway number two 
is more of the yin and yang, more of the good versus evil. In this case, we have the good guys are the guppies, the bad guys are the chupwallas. And while it would be really easy for him to stick with the argument that all speech is good and all silence is bad, that's not what he's doing. He's making more of a nuanced argument that when people misuse their voices, when they misuse their free speech, that's just as bad as being silenced. Okay. Um, and and the third takeaway is we're, we're hearing about the floating gardener and the pollution of the sea. We've got some more mythology happening about this sea of stories. Um, the pollution is hurting the stories and the floating gardener is there trying to clean things up. And I think that even though it it is adding to the mythology... It's not as as overwhelming or as intimidating as it was before. I feel like it's he's taken his foot off the gas pedal a little bit, and now these little nuggets that he's adding in are easier to picture than they were before. I for, have to say, it was way more readable for me. I thought that whole part about the floating garden just sort of, gardener sort of felt good and understandable, and it's got me re-engaged in the story, Mr. Doyle. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. I hope that these students are engaged in the story too, and we will see them in chapter six.